wondered what it's like to face the complex world of disability insurance claims as a physician? Meet Edward Dabdaub, the founding attorney at Dabdaub Law Firm. Eddie began his legal career working as a law clerk during law school at a disability insurance firm, and he would go on to build his own law firm for the sole purpose of handling disability insurance claims. He spent his entire legal career helping people get paid disability insurance benefits. Today, his firm represents all types of physicians across the country. Eddie specializes in physician disability insurance claims, appeals, and litigation. Eddie has represented many physicians and gained a deep understanding of the occupational duties of various medical specialties, and he's applied that knowledge to successfully obtain disability insurance benefits on behalf of physicians. He recently won a case on behalf of a liver transplant surgeon who had own occupation disability insurance. After suffering a fall, the doctor could no longer perform liver transplant, but continued to perform other types of surgeries. His insurance company denied his total disability claim on the grounds that he had more than one occupation, because prior to his disability, he performed other types of surgeries when not doing liver transplants. Eddie successfully argued before the federal court that his occupation was that of a liver transplant surgeon. Once he became unable to perform liver transplant, he was totally disabled from his own occupation despite continuing to do other surgeries. With experience litigating in both federal and state courts, Edward Dabdaub is a true hero for those seeking the disability insurance benefits they deserve. So if you or someone you know is navigating the challenging world of disability insurance, don't miss the opportunity to connect with Edward Dabdaub and his dedicated team at Dabdaub Law Firm. They've got your back. Stay tuned for another fascinating episode of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. And remember, when life throws its toughest challenges your way, Edward Dabdaub and his firm are here to fight for your rights. Visit longtermdisability.net to learn more. This oncologist was stopped in her tracks by some of the things her patients told her so many times that she jotted them down and wrote a book. Listen to what she has to teach us about better communication with our patients. You'll be stopped in your tracks. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. On today's episode, we have Dr. Christina Gomez. She's a gastrointestinal medical oncologist at Banner MD Anderson Cancer Center and author of Stopped in My Tracks, a physician's collection of cancer patients' quotes. She studied medicine at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine and served as assistant professor at Yale University School of Medicine, Smilo Cancer Center. She was born in Miami, Florida to Cuban parents and currently lives in Phoenix, Arizona with her son, young, with her young son. <laughs> Dr. Gomez, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's so great to be here. My pleasure. My pleasure. I was really excited about this interview. So let's start off, off the bat. Let's hit the ground running. Tell us about the book. So Stopped in My Tracks is real. It's out. It's published. I have it here uh, with me so that we can flip through some pages and chat. But this book was really born in med school. I come from the era when it was before our cell phones or all this iPad education, if you will, when we were still being invited to carry a notepad to scribble down the pearls of medicine. In my introduction, I really go into that these pearls that they taught us to sit and watch at the bedside or 
If you saw a physical exam finding that you had just learned in class or a pearl that a, you know, professor emeritus was instilling upon us to scribble it. But Brad, I found that through my career, through my training, there was no time for that. My little book was empty of notes. But through the years, what I was really quoting or was I was scribbling on post-it notes and just crunching up to the bottom of my white coat were things that patients were saying to me. Things that literally stopped me in my tracks. Things that made me laugh or made me pause, uh, made me ask them to say it again. And I would. And then I asked them, hey, can I quote you? If you're of my era also, right? We grew up with that book or that TV show, Kids Say the Darndest Things. Well, I find that patients say the truest things in the moment of encounter, in that patient-physician relationship, in the moment when we close the door, it's a whole other universe. It's almost time-bending, right? They tell us things that they don't tell their shadows, their partners, their children. That's what happened. I collected these quotes, these things. They were honestly on a collection of post-its. I had them in a drawer. And then I was at Yale and pandemic hit and we had a writing hour and we were invited to talk about prevention of burnout. And there was a, an author and a publisher who said, guys, do you guys have any ideas? You know, what would you like to do if you had a chance to write something? And I shared that for 15 years, I had a collection of quotes, patience quotes. And she said, let's take this offline. I, I love the idea. And Stopped in My Tracks was born. This, to me, I'm, and I'm sure you got some great advice, but it, the first thing that comes to my mind, and I guess it's because I'm risk averse, is like, well, these were intimate encounters, right, with these patients. And so there's privacy there. Like, so you have 15 years worth of like disclosure agreements or something like where they signed over the ability to use their quote. Like, how, how did you manage to have the foresight to, 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 you know, manage this legally? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that question because, because it was so ingrained in our training, right? Always permission for everything. Permission, informed consent, yeah, 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 of course. HIPAA here and there. I started with that. You know, when the moment happened, when there was a moment, a lot of them are witty and humorous. Some of them are very profound and filled with wisdom. But I asked them in the moment and I said, hey, you know, I've got this idea. I'm going to write a book one day. And sometimes I thought it was maybe far-fetched and it would never happen. But I said, you know, I, I want to quote you. Would you give me permission? It happened in the encounter and they loved it. In my introduction, I talk about it. Some of them, laughed and, and scoffed at it. Most of them rolled their eyes, but all of them said yes. All of them said yes. In fact, at different encounters, they'd come with, hey, does this make a book? And then again, you're right. It was 15 years in the making, but it was just things I never forgot. And permission, of course, from them verbally. And then everything is HIPAA protected. And that's been legally vetted and all of that. The quotes are just with an initial but the words are preserved as they are to my transcribing and to my memory. Wow, that's amazing. So let's go to that conversa that offline conversation, right? So when you're at that, it sounds like a writing seminar, you know, and you decided that it was going to, you know, this originally far-fetched idea, you know, maybe I'd look back on these some days and it would help me ruminate a little and help me think a little, like remember that there are patients behind these diagnoses and but then that moment where it really started to happen. Tell me about that, that conversation. 
Yeah, so that's kind of rooted in, in a lot of doubt, I'll be honest, if, if I may. Right? I grew up with, with great literature teachers who taught us to look for quotes to guide a paper or to start a talk in medicine and we'd quote Newton or Einstein. But quoting these patients, I, I had these doubts. And if you go to the library, you go to the bookstore, there are books of quotes. And I thought, but, but what about these? So this author and her name, and I want to support her as well. It's Writing Brave Press who supported me. And Brooke Adams Law, Brooke Adams Law, was the writer that was invited to this Yale hour and to teach us. And she said, Christy, I like this. There's something here. I asked her when we looked and edited each quote, edited meaning where do we put the pause, the punctuation, which draft, what do we use? She said, no, no, there's something here. I asked her at every quote, do you get it? Because I didn't want to elaborate any more than the word. I wanted the, the words to speak for themselves. So we vetted these 50 or so quotes. I really grilled her. I'm like, are you sure the message is there? Because what happens with a patient-physician relationship in the privacy of that room? Can we really capture it and share it with the world? And patients loved the idea, but so did my publisher, my editor. She's like, no, no, there's something here. And there's something here that's unique and universal, that all of us can get this. Like all of us are patients in some way or are touched by cancer in some way. Let's do this. And we ran with it. So you said their words are the art of medicine embodied. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I believe that art and science of medicine and in particular oncology, this calling that we have cannot be separated, like that they are interwoven. I think Osler talks about medicine is an art based in science, but in our training, it's easy to become distracted or immersed in only the science, right? Evidence-based, you got to quote this, make sure you know the data, present the cutting edge. But we're honored to be ever at the cusp of art where in oncology, it's, yeah, we know the science, but should we do this, right? Is it going to hurt? Like, when do we stop? Or even if it's working, there are patients in the book who said, you know, I know it's working, but the garden club is going to kill me before this cancer. I don't want to do this anymore because I'm missing out on life. Or I want to live my dying. And she stopped chemo and wrote a memoir. So art of medicine is that in our science of when do we stop? When do we give? When do we go on a trial? But true art, these patients, their wit, their humor, their coping mechanism, and their wisdom, I think is, again, interwoven in the science of what we do. But it's at the heart of, right, this legacy you're the Hippocratic Oath or Maimonides and all that we do, but, but about the very essence of being human and being ill or being well. It's applying the science to the individual. And each individual is exactly that. They are an individual and they have a lot that makes them similar to other people, but a lot that makes them different. So applying that science differently to each person is, I guess, the art. Figuring out how to apply it within that person's specific circumstances and values and worldview and you know psychosocial, economic circumstances. So being able to tailor everything you do to the individual based on what you have learned and learning about that person is the art too. So it's not 
as the science is the algorithm. And then the art is how you tailor that to the individual. Is knowing your patient, knowing your patient, getting to know them. That's it. And now in oncology, right? Tumors are so specialized, subspecialized. Colon cancer is no longer just colon cancer. Each tumor is as individual as we are. But there's art, not only in the science, but in getting to know which patient will say yes or no to these treatments or to the, even the toxicity or to stopping or not stopping, or continuing these maintenance therapies. Then the art of how they face these life-threatening illnesses or these illnesses that are going to be for the rest of their life when we use forever in quotation marks, right? These metastatic illnesses and living with cancer instead of just dying from it. So now that you've described it that way, I want to get to a question that I was planning to conclude with, but I think now would be the time to ask it. How do you not take the gravity of what you do home every day, right? How do you not let it? I mean, you seem like a really upbeat person, right? This is our first time interacting, not over email. And you seem like a really upbeat person. So how do you prevent that gravity from bringing you down? I think I do bring it home. I bring it home if I come balanced and I come aware of what happened today. So for instance, yesterday, two patients died. They were already in hospice. So I knew that it was happening. But when I received the email from the hospice service, both the same day, I took that home. And I remember setting my little guy to watch a little TV as I made dinner and that my time was saying, you know, I need to honor these two individuals. If by memory or what happened in our interaction, again, both of them had reached the moment of accepting and choosing to say no more, quality over quantity. But I brought it home. I sat with it. You talk about my personality, and I think then oncology found me in order to find this balance, right? That I bring this to the encounter, that I bring the optimism. My oncology mentors say that we must be optimists in oncology, but bring that in oncology and ease moments of, of loss are of balance and that the meaning or that the purpose happened during their time together, that the journey, however long or short, was worth it, that we went there. And that I hope that that's what happens in the exam room. That's what happens in the conversations. And that's what hopefully we, we capture in their quotes by quoting them or the quotes that they tell us, right? Like the things they tell us that that's where purpose or that's where legacy remains. So I do bring it home. I just hope that I carry it in a way that it changes me for the next encounter to be a better physician, better listener, better partner, better parent, better colleague. So the relationships, so you're honoring them because you valued your relationship with them. And it sounds like this is something we talk about on the podcast is this is one of the things that makes life is relationships. And so it sounds like you are treating these like not like a transaction, right? That's what, you know, we've communicated before is that when you treat the patient encounter as a relationship in a, instead of a transaction. And so where did you get that? perspective on and how you wanted to see these encounters as relationships instead of instead of transactions. So that happened in first year of med school. First year of med school, clinical skills class, they talked about that relationship. They talked about how sacred it is. They talked about the trust. They talked about the shift from a very paternalistic reality to the partnership that now 
we exercise and practice or try to, I try to fuel and water every day. In that class, clinical skills, first year med school, we were introduced to Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen and kitchen table wisdom was gifted to all of us, first year med students. And Dr. Remen, if, if I may even call her a mentor, right? Just an author. And I did attend one of her retreats and she was on Zoom, but I consider her a mentor of sorts, spoke about inviting patients to the kitchen table. You and I just spoke about getting kids to bed or homework or at the kitchen table is where everything happens. Homework is done. The bills are paid. The groceries unpacked. Imagine bringing that image to the exam room. And that's what I do. I tell my patients, hey, it's like if we're at the kitchen table, let's lay it all out here. Tell me your story. These are the options. Let's talk. If we're making a decision there, nothing's written in stone. That's where it's gift and that's mutual. That's where then I'm okay talking about end of life. I'm okay where I don't forget these patients, the ones that I lost yesterday and the ones that I remember because I'm telling their story or their words I can still use. And they become the teachers to each other. A patient told me that that's a side effect and that's how they described it. And the other patient is like, I got it. So it's a virtual kind of like support group of sorts, if you will. But that moment of how we were taught to to treat our patients like we would treat a, fam a member of our family. You must have a very different family than me then. <laughs> <laughs> that might not fly. My Google reviews would probably be significantly different if that was treating people like a family member. But I understand what you're saying. I mean, it sounds like you are, you're really a gifted communicator with, with your patients. So is there any, are there any lessons on communication that you've learned either like you're saying now, oh, that was first day of med school and I applied it and I've been applying it since, or something that you've learned through like the iterative process of your practice that, that you'd like to share with the audience? I think what I've learned, like if we say, let's look back, let's look back 15, 20 years, what have I learned is the value of silence. Like here we are talking about communication and yet it's the silence that I've learned, right? The undoing yeah. of words, right? The, the growth in the listening, the pause, practicing the pause, that something happens there. Either the patient gets it, like, oh, this is what we're talking about. We're having the hard conversations. Let's sit in the silence. Or for me, really listen. I, I was taught, we are taught that 85% of the diagnosis is in the store. That our job is really putting the puzzle pieces and maybe tying the knot with 15% of what we know. But how quick are we to kind of fit the algorithm and make a diagnosis and run out? Because we have to, or we were taught to, to manage time. But I guess what I've learned, right, 15, 17 years in, wait, take a step back. The truth or the crux or getting to an answer or what to do next or the patient telling me what's really going on happens in the moment of, of silence, of really listening. And there, in my line of work, there's the opportunity for grief or acceptance or more that the patient is ready, but it's the silence for the family members who maybe have never heard the patient's wishes or how they really felt. So I guess that's key. And that's lived every day, or I'm trying to grow in that every day. 
listen more, more silence in communication. But then the invitation to really listen to what they're saying. Not only like, okay, okay, I got it. I got it, Mr. Smith, Mr. Jones, we got it. But what's behind the words? I don't know. A lot of it is in wit and humor. There's so much depth or truth to what they're trying to communicate to us. My patients, you know, what are you waiting for? I'm only 79. She was ready for chemo. Here I was hemming and hawing. Yeah. Or can I buy green bananas, dog? Can I get a haircut? Can I cut the lawn? I didn't understand that as a young oncologist. And they were really asking me, you know, how long am I going to be here? Do we have time? Can I make plans? Or then greater truths like, hey, she's an avid hiker. And I ask her, what's your favorite place? Right where I'm at. I mean, that's a greater truth for all of us, right? Mindfulness and present moment and in our careers, but with our families. Like, don't miss the moment because yeah. this is what we got. And I guess the silence, one, helps you appreciate the moment. And two, I think silence is definitely something I need to incorporate more. I think it also gives the patient an opportunity to realize that you are considering and thinking about them and their situation and their illness. So if you're taking a moment of silence, they're able to recognize that you're processing what's going on with them and therefore taking their problem that much more seriously. So I think there's even another layer to why we should all in include a little more silence in our office visits. But yes, that's something I definitely struggle with a lot. Something I've I've heard before and I've yet to apply. So tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow I will start applying more silence. Is there anything that you wish someone told you before you decided to become an oncologist? Right? Something about your quality of life, what goes on in the exam room, how, what are the possibilities for practice? Anything about being an oncologist that you would wish, you know, let's say there are some med students, interns, right, that haven't chosen a specialty yet. What's something you wish you knew? That the patients really want to know. I think either culturally or in our practice of trying to be extra sensitive, well, they don't really want to know that this is limiting their life or how much time they have left or I think through the years in oncology, that's what I've learned. The patient really wants to know. Yeah. They want to know. I ask all of them if they want to see the scans and and 50% say yes, 50% say fine. Yeah. But they all, they want to know. But you have and that think, information, right? Like, like how much information can you give them? Well, it's going to be anywhere from six months to six years, right? Like how much information can you really, how much prognostication can you actually do? And that's changing. And that's the great question because, and I'm honest about that too. I'll say, hey, this is what the papers say, but every day there's new technology, there are new drugs, there's new clinical trials so that I'm offering you something that wasn't available two years ago, a year ago. And that's when the papers uh, were so written. That will, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that'll continue to change, I hope. And that's where we hang on to hope. And, okay. and that's why oncology is such a great field for the last 10, 15 years. But I think that, that people really want to know. And I don't think I knew that at the start. I thought, yeah, they don't really want to know. Or let's not really say. People need to know. And even if they don't think they want to know, they want to know. Their families want to know. I don't know. There's a gift to the journey. There's a gift in knowing, right? I don't know. There's three meteors flying by the earth this week. And there's things that we can't know. But the things that we can know, I think people want to know. And that I've learned yeah. through the years in oncology. 
Something I've enjoyed a lot more recently, and I and I realize that I've in, in, am enjoying this part of my practice, is is helping them, walking them through how I think through a problem. You know, we treat very very different things, but I think when you say like, you know, they want to know, well, you can't tell the future, but this is how I have this information. This is how I am thinking through your problem and giving you the information that I have. You know, this is what the papers say. This is the medication you're going to be taking. This is going to be, and this is how we figured all of this out. And that's something that I've, now that I realize I enjoy it, I am embracing that more. And that sounds like kind of what you're saying. Yeah. True partners that they also come into what we've learned and that we walk with them in all of the toxicity and all of the emotional and all of the psychological and all of the spiritual that they're going through. So true partners. So can you share with us, it, it might be like picking a favorite child, right? So all these amazing quotes you've collected over the years, but could you share a couple with us? Maybe one that can give us, gives that gives levity to what you do? Let's see. So levity. So one, one patient said to me, doc, whenever it's my time, just give me an IV of Prosecco. And she meant it. She really meant it. When you take the social history, she was very honest about how much alcohol she took. And she looked at me, she said, hey, just give me an IV of Prosecco. And we laughed. In the book, I document that later that evening, I did see her at a local restaurant enjoying her cocktail. So she was really <laughs> honest with us. Yeah. She was really honest with me. And it's how she faced her cancer. She came to it uh, full on. Another one, after Reiki, the hand type of healing art. After Reiki, I did some raking. She had enough energy with her pancreatic cancer diagnosis after her Reiki therapy (laughs) session to go out and rake the New England leaves. Another one, slow down, doc. You'll live longer. I mean, here they are teaching me, right? To to slow down as I was running into the next room. So those are a few of what I've been able to capture and, and, and now put in print. Any of these quotes that have maybe changed your perspective on things? You know, like you said, that's the title of the book, Stopped in My Tracks. So a quote that really stopped you in your tracks and helped you change your perspective on things. Most definitely. And I think I, that one's easy. It comes to mind right away because it was a young patient. Cancer treatment had been exhausted and I walked in not really knowing what to say. And I think she noticed that I was talking about her comfort and taking care of her family. This is a young woman in her 30s. And she paused and she said, don't worry, doc. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed. We are energy. I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to change. Here she is quoting science to me, but in a moment of, of sacred art. She taught me what I needed to say or not say about the letting go. She's like, don't worry. I'm not going anywhere. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for all you do for your patience. I think that, you know, the book is incredible. And for all the listeners, Dr. Christina Gomez stopped in my tracks, a physician's collection of cancer patients quotes. Thank you so much for all you do. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And thank you for this time. Really appreciate this conversation. Before we go, 
Be sure to check out the incredible work of Edward Dabdab and Dabdab Law Firm. For more information and expert guidance on disability insurance claims, visit their website, longtermdisability.net. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, this is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.